Thanks, Vera. Appreciate that. Let me pray for us as we open up God's Word uh, together. Father, we commit this time to you. We uh, look at this text, and it talks about marriage. It talks about singleness. It talks about our desires. We want to handle it well and accurately. We lift up our, our marriages that are represented here, too, that they'd be strengthened as we listen to your word. Or for those who are not, in, uh, who are not married, uh, as they'd understand as well the high calling that, that you have placed on their lives. And we pray that we would not undervalue or overvalue, overvalue either of these, uh, these callings, this gift that you've given us. And so we want to do justice to this text. We, we do pray for uh, Andre and Alyssa who were with us and sharing about their ministry in Ukraine and, and for their marriage as they kind of re dis, dis, disconnected from the place they want to be, um, from Andre's home country, uh, from Ukraine, and are kind of wandering a little bit in Budapest and then in Texas and then don't even know what their next step might be. It looks like it might be Poland, it might be the Czech Republic, and they've got this new child, and they're kind of a family without a physical home, but we know that points us to something beyond like any of these things do. We will never be fully satisfied in this world because these are just shadows compared to the substance that is found, not only in the person of Christ, but in what he is doing, the place he's preparing for us, the new heavens and the new earth. So may that be for us. And a source of inspiration and motivation to use well the time that we have now in whatever lot we find ourselves, even if Satan should buffet. What does buffet mean? Looked it up this morning. Constant assailing, uh, uh, constant attack. Um, let this assurance be ours that you are our estate and that you have overcome. So as we look at this text, may that be the backdrop for it as well because we want to not just do justice to understanding, but to applying it in the now as well as in the future. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's take a look at this, this passage. And when uh, Vera was, was reading that, uh, I was looking at this last verse primarily as kind of a way for framing our understanding of these 17 verses where Paul says, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. So you are not where you are by mistake. God has called you to the exact place where you happen to be. That is your lot in life right now. It doesn't mean that's the way it's always going to be. It doesn't mean maybe you, can desire, you can't desire some changes uh, in the future, certainly. But right now, I know where God has called you. It's exactly where you are. And so Paul is trying to encourage this Corinthian church that even though you may long for a different state, right now, where you are is the place that you have the opportunity to make the most of. Whether that happens to be in this case, as he's talking about relationships, people who are married, or maybe those who are single. And he's addressing issues the Corinthian church had written to him about. And you probably got that in, in verse 1 as well, where, where he says, now about the matters you wrote. You know, you wrote about certain matters, and he's writing a letter back to them, and he's addressing some of the specific questions that they had. And one of the questions had to do with, with marriage. In, in that context, it could be because some people were undervaluing marriage or overvaluing or on the opposite end 
undervaluing being, being single or overvaluing it as well, which is why it seems he's driving to the eventual point of that final verse in 17 that we're looking at too, which is whatever your lot is, that's what God has called you to. So as you are there, if you're married or if you're single, here's how you make the most of that. Here are some guiding ways that you can think about that. So what I'd like to do today is just kind of go through the text for the most part, uh, point by point, and see what Paul has in store as he's sharing this. And the first thing he does is share some insights on marriage, and that's largely in verses 1 through 6 and 10 through 12. And, and the first thing he says is, now for the matters I wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. That doesn't seem like it's on marriage necessarily, but he is telling you, if you're not married, that's okay. It's, 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 not even, it's not even necessarily bad. That can be a good thing. So let's establish that right now. I think largely, and I'm, you know, we're in a, a Western culture, um, we're in the United States of America, and the church culture in the United States tends to elevate marriage as kind of the, the main thing that we're all uh, aiming for. And so if somebody's not married, the question is like, when are you going to get married? Or how are you working on that? Or uh, whatever the case may be. And, and Paul wants to kind of say, you know, we need to kind of recast our understanding of what this is. It's okay. <laughs> not, in fact, there's something good in, in that. And he'll unpack that a little bit more in verses we're not covering today. But let's just begin at the beginning by saying some insights on marriage is it's okay if you're not married. And then he goes on to say, well, but here's the deal. Since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The backdrop for this in chapter 6, everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. I'm not going to be mastered by anything. And I mean, the Bible doesn't pull a lot of, you know, it's not, it's really, sometimes it's not PG. It's kind of 13 at least, and maybe going beyond that as well. It's pretty straightforward about how life actually is. And so he's talked about sexual immorality. And He's saying here, look, one of the reasons, it's not the total reason why, but one of the reasons may be that you are so, so falling into this pattern that the context for expressing your desire for that kind of intimacy is going to be within, within marriage. And that's what he says here. One man, one woman, and the context for intimacy is marriage. So much immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. I know that sounds a little stodgy in our, in our cultural context as well. Um, my, my own understanding of looking at the Bible as a whole is often to look back at Genesis chapter 1 where there was no sin in the world and God had created things as they ought to be. And that's where things flourish. That's just how they operate the best. And when sin enters into the world, it distorts our understanding and perception of that ideal state. And so that's what happens in the context of marriage or even in, the, in other places as well. And part of the vision that the Bible has for what it looks like to live life well is to kind of get back to, as it were, that ideal state. And we're always striving to get there. And Jesus, when he arrives, is the new Adam. That's what he's called. He's the second Adam. He's the one who didn't fail the test. So he's our image of what it ought to look like. And he's making everything new. And eventually it'll be completely refashioned in the way that it ought to be. 
So Paul, uh, as Jesus himself does when he talks about marriage, goes back to Genesis chapter 1, and he sets the framework for how we can flourish the best, how you can make the most of where you are. So for Paul, that's one man, one woman. And the context for that intimacy then, the physical union, is only in that exclusive relationship. And when you get to that point, even with there, it's not like problem solved because we know that there are still things that happen. I mean, the context or the understanding for it, Paul says, is each for the other. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. So Paul here is saying marriage is a place where you are serving the other. That's the driving force of this. There's, there's a verse like this a lot of people could take and use for their own purposes and benefits and kind of use it as a hammer to get their own way. And if you're doing that, shame on you. That's not the point at all. Paul here is trying to make the opposite point, that you have an obligation and a duty to serve the other person and to look to their interests, not only to your own. And any, any marriage that flips that is going to be on dangerous ground. And any marriage that begins to, to pour themselves out on behalf of the other, regardless of what they get in return, is a picture of what things were like back in Genesis chapter 1. Now, are any of us there? Are any of us able to do that consistently? Obviously not. But there is a growth curve, hopefully, and a, a beginning point that we ought to think about. This is what it looks like. I am serving the other. That context is obviously within the case of marriage, but it's in the church itself. And this is the driving force of what it ought to look like to be a follower of Christ. It's not about me. It's about how God is using me, employing me, my gifts, for the good of the other. And if we just got that as a, a, an operating principle, can you imagine how things would shift and change I mean, you're just trying to outserve the other. It can be annoying at some point. I get that. <laughs> like, if you really, I remember in our beginning stages of, you know, when we were dating, it's like, where do you want to go to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to go to eat? But I want to go where you want to go. Somebody's got to make a decision here. And, of course, it's a lot easier 26 years later. <laughs> we're, we're beyond that in some respects, and we kind of know each other. But there's a, there's a good thing about that. How can I serve you? And that's, that's what he wants to, and that, you see what I say, making the most of where you are is not, it, it's not about you being fulfilled, it's about the way that God's using you to serve the other. And here's the reality, we can overvalue marriage because then we think, oh, that person will complete me if they completely serve me, but they're humans and they will fail, and at some point they won't be able to do all that because there's only one who can really get at what's behind marriage and meet the deepest needs. Your desires to be known fully, your husband or wife will never do that. Might know you pretty well, but never fully. What do we say? There's somebody who knows every hair on my head. There's only one who knows all that. So if marriage for you is the opportunity to be fully known, sorry, it's not gonna happen. It may, you may get far down the road in a really good marriage, but fully known, fully accepted, fully valued, even the best marriage will disappoint. And Paul then says, this is a privilege 
that you enter into. It's a joy, but frankly, it's a challenge as well, the sacrificial love, because there's this kind of posture of giving to the other, and there may be times when that is not what you want to do, and this is part of what it can look like sacrificially. There's a giving of the whole of who we are, and a part of that is physical. It's not the whole. It's just a part. We might pursue marriage for what we can get, but the picture here is of what we can give. And I find this next verse quite, quite compelling, um, at least for me personally, because he goes on to say, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's even in the context of marriage. You think self-control issues go away? You get married and it's gone? Sorry. Doesn't seem to be the case. I say this as a concession, not as a command. And then skipping down to verse 10, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A formula he, said, he uses to say this isn't something Christ said when he was there, but he as an apostle is endorsed by the Holy Spirit to speak with God's authority. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. And here Paul is suggesting that spiritual intimacy is prioritized. And I put impermanence also in parentheses. Because usually we, there's a lot that's said and talked about about the goal or the aim of marriage, obviously when you walk down the aisle, is not to get divorced. I don't know personally of anybody unless there's some prenup stuff going on and somebody's targeting somebody for position or power. But generally speaking, everybody goes down the aisle thinking, I'm going to be committed to this person forever. And that's, that's often discussed. What often isn't highlighted that I find compelling here is that a priority for Paul is the spiritual aspect of your marriage. Speaking to the married here, how many of you have denied yourselves the privilege and the joy maybe of some physical union because you're praying? No, I'm serious. Like, look, we got to get about this. We get, because the picture of marriage in one flesh is not just a physical thing. That's, that's why we say it's not all just about that aspect of marriage. There's more happening. There is a spiritual reality that, is under, that, that should be cultivated in the context of marriage. Why is it so hard for husbands and wives to pray with each other? I mean, I, I know especially if you're somebody who's committed on the front end, um, and you're both value faith. You might have kind of started with that spiritual intimacy. Then you get married and it can kind of wax and wane and go away. Well, I think if I were planning things, I would start aiming at that aspect of marriage and make it about something entirely different. So that even within the context of something that should be good, it's a little off center. Why is it so difficult? Why is it that largely speaking, men, we're kind of bad spiritual leaders this is, this is a narrative I hear quite a lot. If I were to ask each one of us who are husbands, how do you lead spiritually in your family and especially your wife? Most of us would just feel ashamed. Not all of us. Some of you are great models for this and it's wonderful, but on the whole, kind of fall flat, myself included. So if there's anything you take away, it could be perhaps you need to start considering how you can lead in that way. It's usually women who are taking the lead in this. And that's great. Women can lead in, in cultivating a spiritual reality, but not only them. I, I'm just speaking as a guide to dudes because that's who I am. 
I can let somebody else speak the other way around as well. But I know you because I know me. And so here it is. It's like Satan's a, a lion devouring, seeking for ways to destroy you. Perhaps it's this. You are not priorities, prioritizing spiritual nourishment of your marriage. And Paul says that's, that's a real danger. And so, I mean, the assumption here is you're denying yourself something so that you can focus on the spiritual aspect. Is that really happening? If we're going to understand this kind of making the most of where you are, what a privilege, what a joy, what a challenge comes to prioritize spiritual intimacy. And if you, if you have a marriage that's kind of at least initially started on, on wanting to, to glorify Christ. I mean, this is what happens by my observation as well. And you prioritize the spiritual intimacy, physical intimacy is going to get better. <laughs> it just is. Because there's more that's happening than just a physical connection. We tell that to people who aren't married, right? And they don't believe us. But it's true. So it's no wonder that if you're cultivating that, it's going to make the other great as well. So those are some insights on marriage. You know, the Bible envisions us as whole beings, mind, body, spirit, volition, emotions. Each affects the other, and Paul is echoing that reality. What about some insights on singleness? Because making the most of where you are, Paul's not just addressing marriage, but people who are single, and he says in verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And so Paul's picture of being single is viewed in a positive sense as a gift, not a curse. And again, depending on what culture you come from, it could be seen the other way around. You're single, that's a curse, not a gift. We got to get you married. And Paul says, nah, there's, don't, you know, hold on. Um, it's actually a, he views it as a gift. It doesn't mean, again, that if you long for or desire to be married and you're single, it's wrong to desire that, not at all. I think it's great to pray for that. One of the activities that we did over with all these English class dinners was just a very basic sentence of, I am thankful for, and say what it is, because, and then you have to say why you're thankful for that and make you think about the, the reasons behind it. And it's okay, I think, to be able to say, I'm having a hard time being grateful for being single, maybe, because I desire to be married. I acknowledge that. That's all right. But then also at the same time, make the most of where you are. Paul says there are some unique aspects about being single that can be leveraged. If your heart's desire is to live out the calling God's place on your life and you're single, you have a unique opportunity to leverage that gift that people who are married cannot have. So it's positive. He sees the benefit. And he, in fact, he says he wishes all were like him. Now, if you read people about Paul and you know what he came from in terms of his training, a lot of people think he may have been married before. If he was really a, a good Jew following the school that he followed, it'd be unlikely that he hadn't. But we don't know for sure. We don't know if, if he was uh, somebody whose spouse uh, had died and was no longer, he doesn't talk about that. So there's, you know, kind of speculation, but we do know he's not married when he's writing this. And he sees the benefits of that. You know, there's somebody else who was never married. Do you guys know who he is? He figures pretty largely into the Bible. 
Jesus, the Sunday school answer. So, you know, not being married, being single, that's Jesus and Paul. Those, those guys were pretty large figures, and there's others in the Bible as well. It's the same person who wrote Ephesians chapter 5, by the way. So Paul isn't like devaluing marriage. He said that is a beautiful picture of Christ's unconditional sacrificial love for his bride. And he gives a, just a great vision of what marriage can be. But at the same time, that's, that's not why we exist to get married. We exist to glorify Christ. And to love him forever. And you have a calling in your life. And the calling that you have right now is right where you are. And Paul's trying to enhance that sense of value wherever you may be. This is a doctrine of calling. We're called to serve Christ. And what that looks like may differ from time to time. Obviously it does as life moves forward. He continues to say in verses 8 and 9. Now to the unmarried and the widows. So those who are single. I say it is, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul is saying, look, marriage has its place, but it's not the recipe for total fulfillment. Even, even in that kind of, he's talking about passion and, and desire and, and physical intimacy, he's saying, okay, that's a part of it, and if that's just overwhelming, you know, marriage is probably a decent option for you, but when you get married, you're still going to have challenges. There are different kinds of challenges, and maybe even in that arena, as he backs up and says each for the other as well. So it's got its place, but it's not the recipe for, for fulfillment. If you're single and you think, I will be fulfilled when I'm married, that's a lie. <laughs> I mean, because all marriage is is bringing up new things that you thought would be satisfied and fulfilled, but they never quite totally are. So there's this balance here in the scriptures I think Paul has of trying to say, you think marriage is great? It's not that fantastic. It's good to be single. It's a gift. You think being single is a great gift? It's really not that great. It might be good to be married. And you're like, give me an answer. Well, that's because God's spirit is guiding you on your journey in community in different ways and the calling is to live it out to the best of your possibility wherever you are that's what this I find that remi remarkably both freeing on the one hand but challenging on the other and so he says look how do we put this all together and some of you know Tim Keller I refer to him from time to time uh, he's in Manhattan and when he started his church some 25 years ago, after the first couple of years, he noticed that the vast majority of his congregation was single. I think 80% is what he said in Manhattan. And uh, just young professionals trying, trying to make it uh, in, in a, a very challenging context. You know, if you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere, right? And people go and they think they can and they don't or whatever. It's just hard, hard place to exist. And lots of singles in this congregation. And he did, he wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And that came out of a series of uh, preaching series he did on marriage to a congregation that was 80% single. And he said, I've got to preach about marriage because they have to know the, the right way to think about it. And the premise underneath that, too, was like either overvaluing it 
or in many cases undervaluing it, making something that, that may be making too much of it or not making enough of it. And that was his motivation for, for writing it. You may be under-desiring it or over-desiring it. You might put it on a pedestal as the end-all or cast it aside as a hindrance for one reason or another. And in Paul's day, the value of family and having children very heavily weighted. If you didn't pass that on, okay, then your family would not only cease to exist, but you'd put them in a compromised situation for the benefits of just in the culture of the day as well. So it's interesting here that he is actually lifting up singleness in his context as something that maybe wasn't as important. And he says that the Bible paints a different picture of what we ought to value and how we can think about this stuff. Um, their hope, then, the reason that he elevates even being single in that context is because their hope is not in continuing their biological line. The hope that you have as a believer is for a, a different kind of future, a different kind of kingdom. Here's how Keller puts it. He says, single adult Christians were bearing testimony that God, not family, was their hope. God would guarantee their future first by giving them their truest family, the church. So they never lacked for brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in Christ. But ultimately, Christians' inheritance is nothing less than the fullness of the kingdom of God in the new heavens and the new earth. The Christian hope not only made it possible for singles to live fulfilled lives without spouse and children, but it was also an impetus for people to marry and have children and not be afraid to bring them into this dark world. For Christians do not place their hope in their children, but rather their children are a sign of their hope that God has not abandoned this world. I think that's a helpful quote for kind of you know, validating the, the greatness of being single and making sure that your hope is in the right thing, but also the danger if we're married and have kids of thinking our kids are our hope. You're our only hope. It's not true. They, they matter, of course, you've been given to them to love and uh, to nurture, but, and I know some of us might fear, I hear this before, why would I ever have a kid and bring them into this world? Understandable question. <laughs> it might even be financially driven, right? Have you seen how much it costs to have a kid? I don't even know how any of us can afford it. But that's not the motivation for or not, not having them or not having children. It just, it isn't. And that really is a stark contrast to alternate worldviews. Paul, here, and this is, this is a word you're familiar with, is trying to frame the way we think about life. How should we be thinking about marriage? Why, why, why do we do it? Why, why wouldn't we do it? And singleness, why would we do it? Why wouldn't we? And, and the value of children and family. The Bible presses us to think bigger about these things, and it does give a vision for what that looks like that's best. And there are competing visions out there all the time. And if we believe that the Bible's authoritative, we measure it against that. I'll give you an example of, of, a, of another perspective, a stark contrast to alternate worldviews. I came across this article a few, a few years ago written by David Benatar. He's a professor of philosophy and the head of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Cape Town. 
And he's the director of the Bioethics Center there. So bioethics. So ethics in the world of biology. He's the director of it. He wrote a book called The Human Predicament, A Candid Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. And in this article, he was reflecting back on a book that he'd written back in 2006. And the article is called this, Kids, Just Say No. You don't have to, like dis you don't have to dislike children to see the harms done by having them. There is a moral case against procreation. And his whole article is written to suggest that we should not have children and that you are actually doing a moral harm by bringing children into the world. He thinks non-existence is better ex than existence. And he, he writes that entire essay building cases about how awful suffering is and why would we ever bring anybody into it. That, that, that pleasure lasts for a moment, but suffering seems to always be there. That you can get injured in a moment, but the rehab takes forever. See, this is a very different worldview than when the Bible comes and says, yes, there's suffering because you're in a broken world, but God redeems that. And he gives you a hope in the context of it, of the way that he's going to fully redeem things in the future. There's, here's the last statement that he makes in that article. The question is not whether humans will become extinct, but rather when they will. If the antinatalist, that's what he calls himself, he's antinatalist against, you know, people being born. If the antinatalist arguments are correct, it would be better, all things being equal, if this happened sooner rather than later. For the sooner it happens, the more suffering and misfortune will be avoided. He's the director of bioethics in the University of Cape Town. And he thinks that you being born is a giant mistake. And that if you continue the process of others being born, you're doing a lot of harm. Do you think the Bible has a different perspective on life, its value, why we're here, what we're called to do, how we should think about life? Do you think it matters if you believe that or not? Well, it does for this guy. Do you want him to be your dad? Would you, would you like this guy to be your father? Ugh, that'd be tough. See, Paul here, and some people read this and say, ooh, restrictions and barriers and boundaries, and this is life-giving. He says this is how we're designed to flourish. A God who's good, who's given us these different avenues of life, and let's lean into those. Or you could just say it's completely useless. Forget it. Now, there's one other thing that Paul deals with here, and he gives us some insights on mixed marriages. Well, mixed belief marriages, you might call it. Because that's what he says, is what happens if there's a marriage and one person believes and one person doesn't? And that was obviously happening in the Corinthian church, especially where a lot of people were new believers, and maybe they, they said, yes to Christ, I'm following you, and then they find out that they have a non-believing spouse. What do we do with that? He says this, to the rest I say, this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So he's saying, pretty straightforward here, 
stay with a non-believer if he or she is willing. If you're in a marriage and it's mixed belief, then you should stay. And of course, this underscores the importance of clarifying that on the front end to the extent that you possibly can. We don't know if these people were you know, already married and then belief systems changed. We have plenty of times here, too, when you see the opposite or a different pathway where uh, maybe marriages are entered into, and there's a very different belief system, a value system there. So on the front end, do all you can to unpack that and to put it in its proper place. And that can change, you know, your, your driving values, obviously. So don't give up. One of the, I love this um, at the end of, of Corinthians. It's such a great picture, and he's talking about a whole bunch of things. We're not quite there yet, obviously, in, in chapter 15. But I think this is a hope for you if you're in a mixed-belief marriage. This is meant to be, I would say, an encouragement to you, and especially as we move forward to these next verses. This is, you've got an exciting opportunity. <laughs> but it's hard, so don't give up. And this is one of my, my favorite verses these days in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And if you're called where you are and you're in a mixed kind of belief, marriage or whatever, your labor is not in vain. Don't give up. Don't give up. It may seem like you're not making any progress in terms of shifting values for the spouse whom you love and you want to adopt, not just because it's, it's something that you think is good, but God has said is good, and you want that for him or for her, then don't give up. Stand firm. Don't be moved. Give yourselves fully where you are to the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is loving your spouse right where you are, even in the ways that were up above, too. And here's what's exciting, and starting in verse 14, and this is kind of a mysterious passage, but in verses 14 through 17, he ends by saying, this is why. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This rule is the one he says he lays down in all the churches. So the summary of this here, too, if you're in a mixed-belief marriage, is that your faith really does have an impact. It really does make a difference on your spouse uh, and on your children if God has given you them. And I, there's some real mystery here in these, this passage, too. Uh, how is it that somebody can be the word sanctified, holy, has been used in Corinthians as somebody who's presented kind of as acceptable? And, and those of us who, who maybe look back to the Old Testament and see kind of God's covenant dealing with families can lean on a passage like this as well to say God does deal with family units. I don't understand it in total, but I know there's some mystery here too, but there's this kind of sense of you as the representative. In a way, then your children even too are set aside as sanctified. I think most of us realize if you're a Christian and you have kids, you raise them in a different sort of way. You're teaching them to pray to God. 
You're teaching them the catechisms of the church, the beliefs of the church. You're bringing them to church. You're treating them differently than somebody who's not a believer. And in that act, demonstrating the reality that we have this sense of God working in family units. You'll be my people, I'll be your God, but also working within that context. Seems to be what Paul is saying here. He's got a, a bigger picture of how that trickles down. Trickle-down faith, economics, perhaps. I don't know how that works out all the time. We, we know there's a, a moment when a child needs to be able to say, yes, I'm on board with this. And if not, then they're outside the covenant. But there's something special and sacred if you are a person of faith in a family unit, even for those who aren't on board. And part of what Paul is saying, at the very least, that's pretty clear, is that if you continue in that way, there's always the hope of a shift or a change. Now, I'm, I'm guessing. No, I'm not even guessing. I know if I stepped back and brought the microphone up and said, is there anybody here who's seen that happen? I know it exists, even in our own congregation. People who are faithful. And over time, the spouse, for whatever, in whatever way, sees or is drawn to a saving faith in Christ because you have been faithful over the long haul. And that's the hope that he holds out here. Your faith does have an impact. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. And that goes also for parents to children. Just keep on keeping on and holding on to these promises because you never know what may happen or when it might happen. Uh, John Calvin says, The godliness of the one does more, he says, to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other to make it unclean. That's his take on this. That just as you are faithful, there is something that God is at work in doing. And maybe you can't always measure it or see it. But it's happening. So don't lose hope. Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep serving. And let God do what he will in his time. Those of us, there's just always mixed, right? Some, some of us are single. Some of us are married. Some of us are divorced. I mean, I, I hope you hear from this that Paul is, is, is kind of got a lens of seeing how the gospel, the good news of Christ, applies wherever you might be. If you feel like a miserable failure, you're not. You know, there's nothing that God can't redeem. If you have longings for something outside the current scope of your existence, you can pray for that for sure. But make sure you're making the most of where you are now. Where you are may feel hard and difficult, but it's where God has you. And all hope is not lost. And you do have mothers and brothers, and you have sisters and fathers. And you look around and you might think, well, this is it. I mean, maybe you could sign up for something different. I don't know. There's other churches to go, to go explore. I get that. But you're not here by mistake. These relationships that God has placed you in are your calling. By virtue of being here, you are called to that. And so these longings, we pray for them for sure, but let's make sure we make the most of right where we are. And as we do that, then I, it seems like in, in God's economy, then he leads us down paths of, that are green. And some of that is a shift. When we enter into Thanksgiving, one of the challenges and opportunities we have there too is to start thinking about how we're thankful for things. And it's, it's been pointed out to me recently how often the Bible's formula for moving forward, especially if you're bitter, is gratitude. Especially if you're hopeless, is gratitude. 
If you're in despair, gratitude. Because there's something about focusing on what God has given that reorients our hearts. There's a lot that we don't have that we want. That's what we make Christmas lists for. <laughs> I want this, I want, and it could be world peace for you. That's great. Sign up for the pageant or whatever the case may be. And it could be really true. That's fantastic. But, but we always have a longing for that stuff. And part of the way God shifts our desires is even being focused on reasons for gratitude right now. Thanksgiving's great. I, I, just another ESL story from this week is we had all these people rolling through. For some, it was the first time, a lot of them, they've ever celebrated Thanksgiving. So we did the little thing where you cut out the hands, you know, and you got the five fingers and maybe the ten together, and you put what you're thankful for, and there's the standard health, family, friends, or whatever. And then it forces you, when you have ten fingers, to start thinking about other things. One of my favorites was somebody said farmers. I've never thought about that before. I'm really thankful for farmers because they make food that I get to eat. You get to food eventually, but thanks for the people who are doing it. I thought, that is really interesting. I've never thanked the Lord like that for farmers. Thank you, God, for farmers. And it's just something that reorients you because you can start thinking about what you don't have. The turkey's dry. <laughs> or somebody's not here who I want to be here. Why do we always fight when we get together? You know, gratitude, it just reorients and shifts us. That's a, that's a biblical reality, and it could be even to your phase of life right now. So make the most of where God has you. That seems to be what Paul is driving for here, too. And you never know. You know, make the most, and let's see what God does in his timing. Some of those longings will not be fulfilled in this lifetime. And you know what? That's okay because even the best of marriages is always going to leave some sense of longing. Here's what Keller says in closing. Marriage was created to be a reflection on the human level of our ultimate love relationship and union with the Lord. It is a sign and foretaste of the future kingdom of God. But this high view of marriage tells us that marriage, therefore, is penultimate. It points us to the real marriage that our souls need and the real family our hearts were made for. Married couples will do a bad job of conducting their marriage if they don't see this penultimate status. That is, it's not ultimate, it's underneath that. Even the best marriage cannot by itself fill the void in our souls. That can only come from the real Savior, Christ. Father, I pray 